You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. It was about a year-long medley of the most brutal rejections you can imagine. Jim Steinman. When Jim Steinman was in high school, he was an outcast. He knew what it meant to be cool, and he knew he wasn't it. He started cutting class, and his grades were slipping. One of his former classmates describes him as the type of smart guy who, instead of applying himself, sat up all night listening to the Beatles. Steinman was a talented musician and writer, skills he thought were better honed off campus. In his spare time, he played piano, and his teacher thought he had the dexterity to become a classical pianist. But that dream didn't appeal to Steinman. He later said it was a case of arrested development. But by his senior year, his post-secondary options were dwindling. And with two successful parents, he knew university was an unavoidable reality. So he set his sights on Amherst College, a liberal arts school in Amherst, Massachusetts. It's considered a little ivy, 
In other words, it's far smaller in size than the traditional Ivy League colleges, but boasts similar academic standards. So Steinman approached his high school guidance counselor about signing his application, but she flat out refused. His grades were nowhere near sufficient, so he'd have to take his academic fate into his own hands. On his application, he told the prestigious art school that he'd spent the last summer, quote, hiking through the Blue Mountains of Kentucky, writing an opera based on James Joyce's novel, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. In truth, he'd never even picked up the book. But for some reason, Amherst College accepted young James Steinman to their fine institution. It was a lesson in creativity. Sure, that may just be a fancy way of saying, he lied. But Steinman later said a lot of great things in his life started out as pure fiction because he realized he could design himself, literally create the person he wanted to be. Steinman struggled in his requisite freshman math and science courses so badly that he even had to appear before an academic review board to plead his case for achieving the lowest grade in Amherst history. But by his sophomore year, Steinman got to choose more creative courses. He started a rock and roll band, and eventually he began writing his own songs. And by his junior year in college, he says he lived up to what he wrote on his application. He became exactly the kind of person who would hike through the Blue Mountains of Kentucky and write an opera based on a James Joyce novel. By his final year at Amherst in 1971, Jim Steinman was relieved to leave his calculus and physics days behind him. For his final assignment, he opted to write and produce a play. It would combine his juxtaposing musical interests, opera and rock and roll. To most, those polar opposite genres seemed crazy. Remember, this was pre-Jesus Christ Superstar. But to Steinman, they weren't all that different because they both dealt in extreme gestures. He said each puts incredible physical demands on a performer, whether in the sublime or the ridiculous, the heroism or the humor. He thought people's aversion to one or the other was more societal than technical. So Steinman wrote and starred in a three-hour futuristic rock opera called The Dream Engine. It told the story of a government controlling its youth with medication, and the second act was performed entirely in the nude, including Steinman's part. The play was emotionally intense, but peppered with belly laughs. To this day, Steinman says it's the best work he's ever done. One night during a performance, a man named Joseph Papp sat down in the audience. Papp was none other than the founder of the New York Shakespeare Festival. And by intermission, Papp got up from his seat and wandered backstage. He made his way through the racks of costumes and rehearsing performers and walked right up to Steinman. He told him he wanted to sign him and put on the dream engine at the festival. Steinman was shocked and completely nude, surrounded by 20 other nude actors singing. 
Steinman said he didn't even read the contract. He just thought, what the hell? It sounded better than going to graduate school. So there, in the buff, he signed on the dotted line and started a career as a playwright. Steinman admired Joseph Papp. Papp was determined to bring theater to the masses, but he wasn't pretentious. He saw no difference between Shakespeare and Hare. The pair worked together over the next couple years, trying to get the dream engine off the ground. But every time they so much as broached the subject of staging the explicit, erotic, and at times violent production in Central Park, the city of New York said, absolutely not. So they decided to pivot, and Steinman got to work writing the music for a new play called More Than You Deserve, based on a novel by Michael Weller. No less controversial in its themes, but perhaps with slightly less nudity, the play was greenlit, and Steinman, Weller, and Papp started casting. They auditioned 800 actors for the leads, a revolving door of the usual Broadway suspects, hungry triple threats sharing shoebox apartments in Washington Heights. But then in walked what Steinman calls a 350-pound behemoth wearing overalls. His name was Meatloaf. Meatloaf was a singer-slash-actor who had just come off a supporting role in Hair on Broadway. Steinman says calling him Meat freaked out everyone in the casting room. But to him, for some reason, it felt totally natural. Meatloaf sang them a gospel song, and Steinman said he convulsed as he performed, and his pupils rolled back into his head so you could only see the whites of his eyes. He was charismatic even when he wasn't in character. And Steinman thought, this is it. This is the guy. But Steinman was alone in that thinking. At the end of the day, when the show's writers, producers, and director got together to discuss that day's auditions, they unanimously vetoed Meatloaf. They said it was ridiculous to even consider someone his size. But Steinman had already made up his mind. He'd write a part for Meatloaf specifically. He wouldn't be the star of the play, but he'd sing the show's title ballad, More Than You Deserve. Meatloaf described Steinman as a rather flamboyant character. He wore gloves and capes and was as eccentric as his music. Steinman thought Meatloaf was the most mesmerizing thing he'd ever seen. More Than You Deserve played at the Public Theater in New York. At first, they performed matinees, but that particular time of day seemed to attract a particular crowd, mostly elderly women. And More Than You Deserve was more than they bargained for. It was not well received. So much so that the lead actor simply walked off stage at one point, sensing a lack of heat from the audience. Many thought Steinman's style was too rock and roll for the stage, too raucous. But eventually, they found a younger, edgier audience. And every night when Meatloaf would sing More Than You Deserve, it became a showstopper. People would stand up in their seats and applaud. 
When they eventually moved to a larger theater, the crowd would scream for an encore after Meatloaf's stunning vibrato in the middle of the first act. An instant reaction Steinman had never seen before or since. Ultimately, the play was short-lived, but it put Meatloaf on the map. In fact, he started getting calls to be in every production in Midtown. He says he even began to turn down roles his agent sent him if he didn't feel like it. Basically, as Meatloaf says in his autobiography, to hell and back. It was then that he got cocky, thinking he'd been catapulted to superstardom. But little did he know, it would get much worse before it got better. Steinman and Meatloaf were doubly blessed. Steinman embraced Meatloaf's Pavarottian prowess, and Meatloaf embraced Steinman's music when a lot of other people thought it was capital B bizarre. So after More Than You Deserve wrapped, the two decided to collaborate again. This time, Meatloaf suggested they make a record. As Steinman tells the story in the series Classic Albums, he had never considered a record before. In fact, at first, he really wasn't interested in the idea. He felt he thrived on a live reaction from an audience. But Meatloaf was persistent. He knew their chemistry could translate to an album. So Steinman got to work. He started with the song Titles, then the music, then the lyrics, in that order. He wanted to write an album full of extremes. He said extremes scare most people. But our teenage years, especially, are filled with extremes. When every moment feels so important and close to the jugular. Feverish, primal, romantic, rebellious, fun, and urgent. He wanted the songs to be nothing like those he heard on the radio. They should have characters and be funny, yet operatic. Each one could be a mini-play, telling an entire story of its own. He came up with six songs, each centered around the concept of cliches. The album would be titled Bad Outta Hell, and the title track would be the centerpiece. It was what Steinman calls the ultimate car crash song. The first record he'd ever bought in his life was a car crash song called Tell Laura I Love Her. So he wrote his own extreme version, where the singer's heart literally leaps out of his chest like a bat out of hell but with a catchy chorus. And Meatloaf, who Steinman describes as majestic, powerful, and spine-tingling, was the perfect vessel to bring that emotional intensity to life. Other inspirations included The Beatles, country music Phil Spector, Bruce Springsteen, Wagner, Elvis, and Peter Pan. It was a musical oxymoron. By 1974, Meatloaf had decided to quit the theater and focus on the album full-time. The songs were coming along, and they were like nothing he'd ever heard before. But just as he thought he was taking his final curtain bow, Meatloaf was approached to play a role in the National Lampoon Show. It would eat into his time with Steinman, so Meatloaf said he'd only agree to the run if he could bring Steinman along as the piano player. That way, they could write and rehearse their passion project on the side. Plus, they needed the money. While touring the National Lampoon Show, they met a newbie to the Actors Union named Ellen Foley. 
Previously, she'd sung in a band for years. Steinman said Foley's voice was one of the best he'd heard in his lifetime. And when Meatloaf decided he wanted to make the song Paradise by the Dashboard Light into a duet, they decided to ask Foley to join their little group. Foley and Meatloaf could both convey a sense of tragedy, but also a sense of humor at the same time. And that was exactly what Steinman was going for. So every afternoon, after lampoon rehearsal, the three of them would huddle around Steinman's Steinway and rehearse Bad Outta Hell. They perfected each song bar by bar. And finally, that year, the genre-defying theatrical six-song concept was ready to shop around to music labels. Meatloaf's lawyer decided to double as their band manager, and it was his job to get them in front of executives. Typically, at the time, artists supplied record labels with cassette demos to listen to. But the group agreed there was no way Meatloaf could be fully captured on a demo tape. So, true to form, they zigged and opted to perform live instead. So Steinman, Meatloaf, Foley, and a backing vocalist Meatloaf had done a play with named Rory Dodd put on little shows for the record companies, mini plays. But Meatloaf said the label heads would just look at them with utter confusion. And record executives aside, producers also hated it. They told them it was impossible. No one would ever buy a musical theater record. And plus, they said it was too visual. The energy all depended on seeing the behemoth that was Meatloaf writhing in front of you. This is never going to work. Their manager said these music labels actually opened up subsidiary labels for the sole purpose of rejecting them. Steinman said even people with just the vague notion of someday starting a record company chose to reject them as their first order of business. Meatloaf said making the rounds to record companies was like purgatory. Day after day, they were rejected under bad fluorescent lighting. Paradise by the Dashboard Light alone is eight and a half minutes long, yet their meetings rarely lasted longer than 20 minutes. The group estimates they were rejected by 30 record labels and another 20 producers. After every rejection, Meatloaf and Jim Steinman would walk out of the label's fancy high-rise together, back onto the streets of Manhattan, and Meatloaf would rage. He didn't understand the small-mindedness. He knew what they'd created was magic, and he was sick of sitting there letting Joe Nobody in Studio C tell them otherwise. So to make some money in the meantime, Meatloaf signed on to do a brand new unknown play called The Rocky Horror Show. Then their manager gave them a call. He'd landed them the meeting of a lifetime. It was with music legend Clive Davis. Davis was then head of Arista Records and responsible for the likes of Janis Joplin and Aretha Franklin. The prospect of performing for such an icon was paralyzing, but they brought their ensemble to his office and started to sing. As Meatloaf tells the story in his book, two minutes into the first song, Davis started shaking his head. He stopped them, 
turned to Steinman and asked if he'd ever even heard a pop or rock song. That the formula of a hit record was ABCBCC. And with Steinman's songs, he got lost somewhere around W. It was confusing. His career thus far, Steinman had been told he was too rock and roll for theater. Now, he was too theater for rock and roll. Then Davis turned to Meatloaf and informed him that actors don't make records. Meatloaf was steamed. He said this was the rejection that sent him over the edge. Now he would be ruthless, bound and determined to prove everyone wrong. But for another year, they were rejected. They came close to a deal with one small label, but it fell through. Nothing was going their way. Steinman could laugh off most of the rejections. His appreciation for the extremes made reactions like Clive Davis somewhat entertaining. But not Meatloaf. He was all revved up with no place to go. Then, an unexpected producer gave them a call. It was Todd Rundgren. Rundgren was considered a pioneer in progressive rock. He had a string of massive hits in his own right, including We Gotta Get You a Woman, Hello It's Me, and I Saw the Light by the early 70s. And he had also forayed into producing as well for acts like Grand Funk Railroad and Hall and & Oates. Rundgren caught wind of Bad Outta Hell through a producer friend of his. He'd never heard the name Jim Steinman, but he'd just seen Meatloaf in Rocky Horror so he said he'd give their demo tape a listen. Well, Steinman and Meatloaf didn't do demo tapes. So as they'd done dozens of times before, they performed live. As they played the title track, Bad Outta Hell, Rundgren nearly rolled on the floor laughing. He couldn't believe how out there it was. Rundgren had done multiple concept albums of his own and done work on records that were challenging before. So he said it seemed like it could at least be a productive working relationship. Whether it had any commercial potential, he didn't know. But Rundgren got it. All of it. The tragedy, the humor, the theatricality, meatloaf. He didn't want to change it to become more palatable. He was in. All in. Rundgren, as an artist, was signed to the label Bearsville Records, a subsidiary of Warner Brothers that included other artists such as Foghat. And since the Bad Outta Hell team didn't have their own label, Rundgren proposed a deal to Bearsville. If Bearsville paid for the rehearsal, production, and studio costs, they'd get first right of refusal on the album once it was complete. If they turned it down, they could defer all costs to Rundgren and he'd shop it around to other labels. Bearsville agreed, and the team stepped into the studio. And we'll be right back. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. 
Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Over the following months, Todd Rundgren turned Bat Out of Hell from a theater record into a rock and roll record. They wanted to record the album as close to live as possible. That way they would maintain a Broadway feel. But at the same time, all six tracks were woven with thick textures and layered voices. They recruited musicians Roy Bitten and Max Weinberg of the E Street Band, to bring some structural underpinning to the album and prop up the specter wall of sound. For the epic car crash song that was Bad Outta Hell, Steinman wanted an actual motorcycle on the track. He said it was crucial and asked Rundgren if a sound effect could be inserted into the bridge. But Rundgren wasn't a fan of sound effects. So he picked up his electric guitar fiddled with a couple knobs on his amp and proceeded to play a revving motorcycle riff using just his instrument. Then transitioned seamlessly into a solo. And he did it all in one take. Steinman later said Todd Rundgren is the only true genius he's ever seen. Meatloaf and Ellen Foley recorded their duet and Steinman had his heart set on having Hall of Fame baseball player and 40-year announcer Phil Rizzuto read the song's tongue-in-cheek baseball commentary. Rundgren wasn't a baseball fan and didn't understand the need to spend $5,000 to get Rizzuto on the track. But once again, Steinman said it was crucial. Rizzuto never listened to the song, 
and had no idea it wasn't actually about baseball. That song made Rundgren laugh. He said he could never imagine outcast Jim Steinman in a car with the most beautiful girl in school. But he could imagine him imagining it. Then they made one more addition. At the 11th hour, before they'd wrapped the recording, Steinman added a seventh song to the album. It was a sort of pseudo-love song called Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. No one thought it was going to be the defining piece on the record by any means. Rundgren said it was actually rather sappy, save for its unusual mention of a Cracker Jack box. But Steinman said it was crucial. So with that addition, Bad Outta Hell was finally complete. The first order of business was to go back to Bearsville Records under Warner Brothers, who they had given first right of refusal to, and who had funded the album thus far. But despite the evolution of the record, despite the money Warner Brothers had already poured into it, and despite Todd Rundgren's seal of approval, Bearsville turned them down. It was a crushing blow. Per Rundgren's agreement with Bearsville, he was now stuck with the bill. And that bill was sizable. So they were back to knocking on the doors of record labels, many of which had already rejected them. Their manager said sometimes they'd get a glimmer of hope. Maybe one executive would like the sound of a guitar riff here or a melody there. But by the time the conventional wisdom of these corporations got together, they found plenty of reasons to say no. No one understood the Phil Rizzuto play-by-play moment. No one thought Meatloaf was marketable. And most of all, it was the disco era. They wanted the next heartthrob John Travolta in a white suit. It was deja vu, except this time, they weren't performing live or handing out a bad demo tape. This time, they had a completed album. With Meatloaf's operatic vibrato, motorcycle guitars, eagles-like harmonies, chimes, tambourines, members of the E Street Band, and Steinman's classical pianist-level dexterity. Ellen Foley said they paraded the album around for an endless lineup of suits, but no one got it like Rundgren got it. For six months. Rundgren said the album was likely perceived as damaged goods, because it had been walked around to so many labels. Then, the tape landed on the desk of a man named Steve Popovich. Popovich had just opened up his own record company called Cleveland International Records, a subsidiary of giant Epic Records, who had already turned them down. Popovich popped in the tape, listened to the first 20 seconds of You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth, called them and said, This is the best rock and roll intro I've ever heard. I want to sign you. Steve Popovich only had one other act on his label at the time. And normally, that wouldn't inspire much confidence. Except in this case, it meant Popovich had all the time and incentive in the world to make sure this album panned out. In their contract, he agreed to absorb the rehearsal and recording costs Rundgren was carrying. And in October of 1977, the album was released. And right off the bat, 
that went nowhere. Popovich started putting out singles from the album, starting with You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth and Calling Radio Stations. Then they released two more singles. But Steinman says DJs hated them. The songs were the length of three or four regular songs combined. It was too weird. Plus, the record itself was confusing, like buying the soundtrack to a Broadway show you didn't see. So Meatloaf decided to go back to what had gotten them into the capable hands of Todd Rundgren in the first place, playing live. They'd have to go on tour, but not just any tour. It would have to be an epic tour. So Meatloaf got up in front of everyone on the team and said, and I quote, This is it, guys. I'm telling you right now what's going to happen. I'm a train, and you can either choose to be a car behind me, or you can unhook yourself right now. Because I'm going. Ellen Foley decided to unhook herself and pursue other projects. So they'd have to hire someone else to sing Paradise with Meatloaf. They found a woman named Carla DeVito. She was a great singer as well as a talented actress. And that's exactly what Meatloaf wanted. Someone who could go all out on stage. Their new label asked them who they wanted to open for. But Meatloaf said, no way. He refused to be an opening act. But with virtually no leg to stand on, they wound up the opening act at a Cheap Trick concert. Meatloaf, Carla, Steinman, and the band made their way to the show in Chicago, Cheap Trick's hometown. Rock and roll crowds are notoriously tough, but at Steinman's insistence, they stepped onto the stage in what can only be described as theater costumes and started playing their first song, Bat Outta Hell. They were nearly booed off the stage. The angry crowd screamed profanities at them. They threw food. It was an absolute disaster. But Meatloaf turned back toward the band and told them he refused to give in. And by the end, the Cheap Trick fans weren't giving them the finger anymore, which he considered a tiny victory. Meatloaf later said it took him years to get over that show. Two days later, their next gig was at a club in New Jersey. And as they pulled up to the venue, it was mobbed with at least 300 people. The size of the crowd was shocking. So they asked the venue owner what was going on. And he told them that all those kids were lined up to see them. Word had spread since the Chicago nightmare that this crazy group was actually worth seeing. That night, they sold a decent stack of records. They couldn't believe it. And that glimmer of encouragement turned Meatloaf into a machine. He said he stoked that train full of wood and coal until it burned blue. Soon they were traveling all over the country, and their show had become a spectacle. Meatloaf alone was a sight. He ran all over that stage, pouring his blood, sweat, and tears into Steinman's words. Six nights a week. Paradise by the Dashboard Light became the main event. Meatloaf and Carla DeVito were actors, playing the parts of teenagers parked by the lake, throwing themselves at each other and making out on stage. 
something DeVito says was not in the original job description. Steinman said their act was a feat of athleticism, like doing basic training for the Marines every night. Slowly, they started selling more and more albums at each show. Rundgren said, it's the law of music. If you're willing to go out and flog what you do endlessly, and you've got something of interest to flog, you will almost always build an audience. And he was right. Soon, radio stations started to take notice. Suddenly, disc jockeys gave the record airtime. Not only were the requests coming in, but DJs, and in a couple years, VJs, realized the longer tunes would let them take a break from their post. So they started playing Bad Outta Hell songs back to back. Teenagers became interested in the record, connecting with the irreverence and sexual innuendo. One review would later say that every chorus was like losing your virginity. In 1978, they landed the coveted musical guest slot on Saturday Night Live. Meatloaf was terrified. They performed all revved up with no place to go and two out of three ain't bad. Records started flying off the shelves, but not just in the US. Britain loved them too, and Australia. They even knocked Saturday Night Fever out of the number one spot. In his book, Meatloaf said soon more people in Canada owned Bad Outta Hell than owned snowshoes. But critics, not so much. Rolling Stone called the album derivative and said Steinman is too wordy and had some growing to do. British music magazine Melody Maker called them the, quote, worst band in rock and roll history. Ouch. But Meatloaf said what that did for the album was extraordinary. Suddenly, everyone in the UK had to hear the worst band ever for themselves. so hard and for so long took a major toll on Meatloaf. In fact, it strained his vocal cords irreversibly. He says stoking that train full of wood and coal for so many miles destroyed him. By the time the tour was over, he couldn't hit the same notes he'd hit on the record itself. Meatloaf was like an opera singer, someone whose voice shouldn't be strained more than two performances a week. He was doing six. Steinman said the steam that came off his body during those performances was like the steam coming out of a manhole over the New York City subway. But eventually, five years after Steinman and Meatloaf decided to join forces, they finally started reaping the rewards. The first check Todd Rundgren got in the mail was for over $700,000. He said it was the biggest check he had ever seen in his life. And it was at that moment he realized... Maybe this wasn't such a goofy idea after all. Just like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Bad Outta Hell bombed at first. Yet, it became a cultural phenomenon. It would sell over 40 million copies worldwide, catapulting Jim Steinman and his muse Meatloaf to superstardom. A 2017 Billboard magazine article said there are two types of people from the late 70s music business. Those who readily admit that they never in a million years would have guessed that Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell would go on to be the fifth highest selling record of all time. And liars. Oh, and the 11th hour tune, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, 
ended up becoming their highest charting single. The album has often been called a sleeper record, but with Meatloaf driving the train, audiences woke up. And the weird, uncategorizable, unmarketable collection of mini plays that was rejected 50 times over virtually exploded all over the world like a bat out of hell. If you weren't a teenager in the late 70s, you really have no idea how big this album was. It was a phenomenon. It was one of those albums that could stop an already rockin' party in its tracks and make everyone belt out the lyrics. This story is a celebration of outsiders. Jim Steinman was quirky and weird and leaned toward classical and opera. His music was epic and funny. Meatloaf wasn't lean and mean like Jagger or Springsteen. He tipped the scales at over 300 pounds, but his vocals soared, and you could not take your eyes off him when he performed. He was mesmerizing. What made Steinman and Meatloaf so strange and so eccentric was what would eventually make the record so successful. But that magical weirdness was also record label repellent in the beginning. Steinman and Meatloaf spent over two and a half years trying to attract a record label. Two and a half years of constant rejection. They weren't just outsiders. They were way outside the circle of acceptance circa 1977. A tongue-in-cheek teenaged rock opus in the middle of the John Travolta BG Saturday Night Fever fever was just about as outside as you could possibly get. Their manager said it felt like they had been turned down by 5,000 record companies. They were even turned down by Clive Davis, maybe the most famous music executive in history, a man known to have solid gold instincts. But Davis didn't see it. Nobody saw it. Until they met Todd Rundgren and Steve Popovich. Bat Out of Hell wasn't rejected because it was bad. It was rejected because it was so unfamiliar and so original that it even scared seasoned professionals whose job it was to find something new. One of the grinding truths of life is that rejection is the world's default reflex. When something is so quirky, so boundary-pushing, it triggers immediate refusal. Steinman said record labels were incensed by their music. They didn't just dismiss it. They hated it. But if you believe in your idea, then you have to be willing to risk disappointment, small defeats, and even humiliation. Because it doesn't matter how many times you are rejected. It only matters that one person says yes. The album that nobody understood, the album that labels scoffed at, the album created by outsiders that nobody wanted sold 43 million copies. And it continues to sell over 200,000 copies annually to this day. 
Sometimes, it takes years to get to that one year that will change your life. Never, ever give up. Bad out of hell. Copy sold. 43 million. Total weeks on the UK chart. 522. Certified platinum status. 14 times over. Listed as one of the top 500 albums of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. Number 343, Ain't Bad. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This episode is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Keith Oman. We regret to inform you this series is produced by Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. If you're interested in advertising on our show, let's chat. Reach out on our site. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.